Hey everyone, welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and I am very glad to have you listening. I have a really cool episode that that involves a lot of the um, things that I've worked on for many years, um, having had the privilege to work with folks who are queer, trans, gender nonconforming, and who've struggled with um, disordered eating. That's pretty much the work I've done in, as a psychotherapist for many years. And Meg Bradbury, who I'll introduce in a moment, is someone who has had, you know, a, a lifetime to think about and experience um, those intersections. Uh, I have one, uh, I guess, Two announcements. That's not true. I have two announcements. Um, one is that I will be hosting on October 1st a uh, virtual workshop, and I will be doing that every month. So there's, I think there's only two more spots available in the virtual workshop. Um, the topic is around what we really want from relationships, and it is, it's a really sweet time. It's an hour and a half. You get to talk with a bunch of people who are all interested in the same topic. It's a queer space. I can't promise that it's a safe space, but I you know, really hope it can be and really want it to be. And that is going to be happening every month. So the best way to find out about that is to either DM me on Instagram at Living in This Queer Body, and I will give you the info, or you can go to my website, www.livinginthesqueerbody.com, and go to the section that says Work With Me, and you can register to do that um, right from my website. The other um, announcement is that I am doing one-on-one sessions for folks who listen to this podcast, who would like to address sort of a specific topic with me, um, folks who, yeah, would like to have a one-on-one session with me. That is also available to reserve on my website under the working with me uh, section. Uh, There's a lot more about how I work with folks um, on Instagram and on my website, but essentially the sessions are for people who um, either there's like a specific topic or something that has been, you know, described or explored in the podcast or something and you want to talk about it further or talk about the ways it impacts you, um, questions you have about stuck places in terms of embodiment in your life and nourishment in your life. Um, This is not ongoing psychotherapy, but it certainly is informed by my experience as a psychotherapist and also a group facilitator and someone who's um, worked in a clinical way for quite a number of years. I think it's also really can be helpful for people who have a a rather, I don't know, public life or a life in which they do a lot of healing work, quote unquote healing work, if that is something you resonate with um, that title or not. But, you know, just thinking about how boundaries work for you, how to kind of 
remain in your body while you're um, while you have a public body and a public self. Um, so those sessions might be helpful for that. Uh, so reach out to me if you have questions. And the way you can always find out about all of these things is to sign up for my email newsletter. Um, it comes out uh, twice a month. And you can sign up by just going to my website, livingthisqueerdabody.com, and there'll be a little pop-up, and you put your name in, and you will be signed up. Um, and that's the way you can find out about the most up-to-date things. Like, I'll be having some um, local workshops in the New York City area or anywhere else if people want to bring me to your city or town. Um, I might be open to that. So tune in to all the things happening with me. But in the meantime, I want to introduce Meg Bradbury. Meg is a really amazing person and very wise and knowledgeable. Um, she's a certified holistic anti-diet nutritionist, body trust provider, accessible yoga teacher, and registered Yoga Alliance yoga and meditation teacher. Uh, Meg is in private practice, working with individuals, groups, and families, advocating for body acceptance, eating disorder, disordered eating, body shame recovery, freedom with food, joyful movement, and stillness and breath work. Meg's work is guided by the principles of intuitive eating, health at every size, and the Ellen Satter Institute through a social justice and intersectional feminist lens. Meg's practice is fat positive, weight neutral, and QTGNC affirming. As an eating disorder and exercise bulimia survivor, Meg's work is centered in the tenets of relational cultural therapy. She holds space for clients of all ages with compassion, empathy, and humor. Meg is a member of the Association of Size Diversity and Health and the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. Meg lives and works in the Los Angeles area. And if you want to find out more about how to work with her, you can go to Instagram at lamplight.space. So that's L-A-M-P-L-I-G-H-T dot space. And that gives you links to her website where you can learn about all of the offerings she has. And some of them are just really, they're just very powerful and very needed. So um, I suggest you check her out and thank you again for listening and tuning in as you may know from listening to my podcast i do i've been starting every episode asking people to reflect on you know some experience or set of experiences in their childhood that helped them understand what it meant to be in a body or have a body? I'm thinking of two experiences. One is when I was about five, that's kindergarten age. I remember I was standing in line for my class picture and I was behind a girl who kept turning around to look at me. And then eventually she asked, you know, do you eat a lot of sweets? And 
I said, I don't know. I didn't even have context of what that meant. I remember feeling confused about what that word meant. And she goes, because I'm wondering if that's why you're so fat. And I had a very, I remember feeling like, well, that's an interesting thing to say. And I had no real feelings about it. And I went home and I told my mom. And I remember this very visceral look on her face of her own shame and looking at me in a different way. And I remember that instance as being the kind of starting awareness of I felt wrong in my body. Mm-hmm. And that um, and that other people kind of felt like my body was wrong. So that was one time. And then kind of connecting the queer piece to this. And mm-hmm. this is this is this this body experience is a little happier than the first one. I remember the first time I held hands with a girl um, was in middle school. I think it was 11 or 12. And I had, I had such a huge crush on this girl. And I didn't understand it as a crush. I understood as she's my best friend. I have really intense feelings. And we were walking on the beach and she just grabbed my hand and held it. And it changed me. It was, that was like, oh, everything feels right, right now. And so that was a really big connection between my, my baby queerness and how how good and right I felt in my body at that moment. After so many years already, as even that at that young age was feeling pretty wrong in my body. It was mm. a really nice affirmation. Mm. You got a beach moment. Like that's <laughs> that's pretty that's pretty dramatic and, and amazing in a way. And she was wearing a chamois bikini. This was in the 70s. So it's like, you know, it's all sorts of feels everywhere. Couldn't have asked for more. Yeah, pretty amazing. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's a cool story. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So how how would you feel about talking a little bit more about um, the not so happy story of um, kind of growing up with such explicit messaging and around food and body shame. I've been, you know, as a psychotherapist, I'm increasingly or always interested in how children's perceptions of their parents' own perceptions of their bodies. You know, it's not, you mentioned your mom's shame. And I'm just wondering what you understand of kind of what now, what you were born into in a way, you know, like what, what was already kind of operational as beliefs about food and bodies in in the family that you grew into yeah I it's it's so curious because it's almost like I can I can my origin story of body shame it's so palpable at that point and it's even I'm almost 56 and that I can recall the feeling I really a lot of this is sort of hindsight and the, the work sure. I've done on this stuff, and also being a parent myself of a daughter, and and kind of putting her through something fairly similar because of being um, pretty sick with an eating disorder. I was grateful to have my sisters there experiencing the same thing with me. So um, I had that shared experience. and. We didn't talk about it as kids because we were so admired in it, and we we felt that we had 
done something wrong by being in the bodies we were in and that we couldn't really change that so much and we were kept you know my mom most particularly would take us to the doctor in hopes that we had a thyroid issue or the doctor could make some changes to our diets and we would get these diets and that my mom would further restrict us because she thought the diets weren't as restrictive as they should be and so was she restricting herself at the, like alongside was it kind of a mirroring situation where she was doing the same thing she wasn't doing the same thing but it's interesting that my sisters and I cannot recall my mom eating in front of us. She smoked. Again, this was like, you know, 70s and everybody smoked everywhere. And she would drink tabs. <laughs> but there was not a lot of, I didn't really, it wasn't in her practice to either eat in front of us or eat very much at all. And same thing with my dad. My dad would shame himself if he actually ate a substance amount of food. He would talk about how much he shouldn't have done that and he should probably mm. go for a run. And, and I'm not quite sure if my parents kind of inspired each other in their body stuff or how they developed their own body stuff. I'm not aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, but they definitely were both very invested in how we looked and how we presented to the world. But it's, it's, Almost as if I I didn't know them very well because they separated themselves from their children so easily mm -hmm. that um, they were just the people who monitored us. I guess any it sounds like any moments of kind of intimacy, strangely, were moments when you were being monitored around food or your body or exercise or something like that, which is sort of interesting in a way i think that that's not it's an interesting one i have to look at it that way it's, yeah connection at any point or just uh, even sort of attention attention around aside from that was pretty limited right so could you talk a little bit about sort of how you you know we don't have to go through your entire life story, although I'm very interested in it. But, you know, I'm, I'm just curious how you understand these early experiences of kind of being really um, having these narratives around not being accepted or being shamed around your body, how you coped with that as a child and then as a, you know, as a young adult or younger adult. Yeah, how did you deal with that within yourself and behaviorally? Oh, I think it's so curious to compare my response to that upbringing um, to that of my sisters, who are both mm. different from me. I have an older sister, two years older, and a younger sister, seven years younger, and they're both very much like each other. And I was truly the myth child in every sense of the word. And so their response was to really strive for great grades and, and and kind of cultivate other positive relationships with other adults because there was not that in my family and mm. me I just ended up being I wanted to rebel I wanted to misbehave I wanted to get attention too but in very different ways than my sisters got attention so as we moved through adolescence you know I did 
drugs and, and you know, um, was a punk rocker and didn't come home and went to jail and did these, these things that I, I found my community in mm-hmm. punk rock and, and through, you know, like discovering that I was gay and, and kind of developing that community. And my sisters found, like, they both are born again Christian and they found their community and their family through that. And, you know, even though we're very different still to this day, we have the, the familial and, and, the, and the sort of like a small, tiny little community that we built within ourselves because of the lack of attention from our parents that has bonded us together very dramatically and very poignantly, even though we're very different. So that's been really imperative in my feeling loved and, and um, appreciated as a kid growing up it's just knowing that my sister's always there for me mm. um so yeah it was it was i think it, it very i love my response to that upbringing i think <laughs> a lot of um i would say a lot of mistakes and caused a lot of issues and certainly caused a lot of anger for my family because of things that i did and you know, and how I was and, and very public about my rebellion and the trouble I was getting through. I'm sure that was problematic for my family. But um, I don't regret anything. I really love the response to that. I had to go and where I wanted to go. And it, um, it built who I am, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did you find the the kind of punk community and you know i know that you lived in you were very politically active in san francisco in Mm -hmm. the 90s and you know how did you find those communities to be in terms of you know both your queerness and maybe also how you felt in your body in those communities if you felt like you found some more empowering messaging or found some, some similar, you know, body shame. Yeah. Messaging. Yeah. In, in punk, I think it, this was like in, in 1979 and early eighties, Los Angeles. And there was a, you know, at the time it felt so, so important. It was such an important scene so much music coming out and so much activity and a lot of attention naturally on the news. There was just, it was so exciting to be a part of. And, um, and it, it was pretty actually homophobic. <laughs> um, there was a lot, it, particularly after the scene started changing and we had more violence coming to it, which is probably 80, 81. It was more testosterone driven, and and I remember kind of looking around for girls to make out with, and it was a little easier the year before, and then everybody just started being very guarded and worried um, with the influx of, of the types of people that were coming into talk. Uh, so I did not feel very um, free or, or supported there at all as an out young gay girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember trying to convince all these girls to make out with me, and 
and it, you know, didn't go very well. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, they would, and then they, you know, then they, you know, publicly say something or, or whatever. Um, mm. And also at the time I was drinking a lot and, mm-hmm. um, and not taking care of myself and, in a lot of different ways and so I didn't feel very good about myself and my physical self and I think there was one particular summer when I wasn't living anywhere I was just kind of couch hopping and and squatting and and um and I remember somebody I'm standing on a stage during the show somebody yelled at me that I was getting really fat and I, it was a dude, and I remember feeling really put in my place. And I hadn't mm. had that reaction before in terms of feeling almost shamed as a woman, as well as being shamed for being in a rounded body. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it sort of came to my attention, too, that I was mistrusted because I was gay as well at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that word had gotten around. So there was a lot going on in that. Mm-hmm. And then moving, you know, moving forward towards my San Francisco years, when I moved up to San Francisco in 1990, I moved up to go to school. And it was, I mean, Ninth the nineties in San Francisco is queer nation and lesbian Avengers mm-hmm. napped up and and uh, I really got the aesthetic and the politics of San Francisco lesbians way more than the sort of um at the time in Los Angeles there was just more um it was more affluent and more um femme driven and mm-hmm. not as political. And right. when I found the community up in San Francisco, the baby dykes and, and everything that was going on up there, I was, that was when I felt like I found my completely. So, yeah, yeah everything. Like Go ahead. More parts. Well, I'm just thinking more parts of you, potentially, I'm imagining, I mean, I lived in San Francisco and not in the 90s, but in the early 2000s, which is a totally different time period. But I'm just thinking about, you know, the the kind of different parts of yourself that may have from a political and queerness as political um like all of those elements and, and punk you know like queer punk you know coming together for you yeah san francisco you know like the the the, the more of that was resonating for you and i wonder if that impacted kind of how you were feeling i'm sure it did but how you remember that feeling in your body so much so much it was almost as if and I always I call the 90s sort of my decade of remission from mm, from decade any of sort of disordered thinking or, or you know I've gone in and out of disordered eating and eating disorder patterns for my whole life pretty much and so the 90s really reflected my um, my comfort and my feeling mm. of inclusion and centeredness in you know who I was and what I was supposed to be doing it just felt really right at that point I, I had my first you know in, important and, and at the time very long relationship fell in love for the first time mm. um, with somebody who absolutely 
loved and adored me and vice versa. And that was a new feeling too. So there was a lot of great there and a lot of centeredness there that, um, you know, I still remember as feeling the first time in my young life that I felt right. Mm -hmm. So you think, you know, reflecting back, do you think that that kind of being accepted or having in, like experiencing intimacy around, um, you know, kind of other things aside from, you know, body shame or food intake or those kinds of narratives that were really part of your childhood, um, that 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 has stuck with you in some ways. I mean, that, 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 that idea that, I don't know, that those aren't the, the kind of primary ways that you seek out, um, intimacy with others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I wonder sometimes if it had to do with going away. And I wonder sometimes if it had to do with I know Los Angeles is pretty specific in terms of body aesthetic and getting away from that too. Um, and you know, there's they're outside of LA and I, I know I know LA is not the only place that I'll use that as my primary example because that's what I know that it's um, aging is frowned on, natural aging. I just sound like in, in San Francisco in particular. And in the guy community in particular, that there were fat dyes, and there were um, hairy dyes, and there were, um, and, and it was it was not even talked about. It wasn't an issue. It was just the way it was. And mm. I love that freedom, and I love that nobody seemed to care, and that everybody was equal and welcome that's how it seemed to me you know I'm, sure mm -hmm. I'm, I'm romanticizing that but in in my travels and the communities I I was involved in it was just sort of a given that everybody's body was pretty much on the same level it, it wasn't at all what I'd experienced in my family before with Los Angeles mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that felt really empowering too I don't know if you've seen those those really early 70s, um, scratchy, probably really early videos of the, the first body positive, I forget the name, um, but the, the body positive movement that had nothing to do with what your body positivity is now. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, it, oh, there, it's amazing. It's, it'll make you cry because it's a bunch of uh, fat, either masculine or, or dykey looking women who were talking about, you know, being given medical access and, and access to comfort and travel and, and things like that, things that we still talk about, but yeah. they, they were taking such a risk to make a stance that wasn't that it wasn't anything other than we all deserve this kind of freedom to move about the world in an equally respected place and whatever body we're in. And that's the kind of, when I watched that film, when I was doing my body trust certification, I, I watched it with the same lens 
as when I moved up to San Francisco and, and sort of moved about so freely and so happily and so mm. without a care with with what I was eating or what I how I was exercising or, or mm. all of that. It was the same feeling of like, oh look at me and 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 look at this world that I'm in now where it's so liberated and so accessible to just feeling normal and mm-hmm. feeling a sense of belonging. And a lot of that was body freedom. That's amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll definitely try to find a a link to that. And I think I'll put. It, I think I have one. I think I can. Yeah, one. put it in the show notes for people to check out. Because I think you know you're speaking to something that that you, as you said is still not even still it is an issue. Yeah. Um, in the kind of, I mean, I'd love to hear you talk more about, you know, sort of in, in the contemporary moment, what you as someone who is both um, a person who has, you know, struggled with disordered eating, but also who, you know, is, a, is practicing to help support folks as an anti-diet nutritionist, like what, what are you seeing as issues that still remain in the discourses around healing and wellness that, you know, that, that, that in some ways that video was really addressing, um, more poignantly. Yeah, absolutely. And of course I need to acknowledge my own thin privilege. Um, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. important to say here. Um, I can't, I don't have lived experience in a super fat body and I want to acknowledge the work that, that folks have to do to this day from, you know, from certainly my lifetime on. Um, so there's that. But I, I will, in, in my work, I think it's, it's, I think there's been some change recently. There's, a, there's at least been discussion. There's at least been open doors where we can actually talk about this issue, this issue of shame and bias and and difference around weight. I, I can't say that I've seen that much of a you know cultural shift mm-hmm. um, aside from having language around it and having feeling like there's a community of us people who are starting to push against it. Um, clearly there's always been somebody pushing against it, but Right now, there seems to be kind of a, a like a whirlpool of activity and it's circling mm-hmm. around those issues. And the, the momentum that we're building feels very important to me right now. I feel like um, at least in the bubble that I am in, <laughs> um, mm. in the, our body trust, community and body acceptance community and what we're building is queer body acceptance you know I feel like there's a moment here in the same way there was a moment when I when I understood what I was feeling when I moved to the city in a way that I understood that that I felt wrong because of somebody else's opinion to me when I was little there's a moment that is feeling remarkably powerful Mm -hmm. Um, so kind of that there have I seen a lot of things change I think right now 
what's different than uh, now than it was maybe even 10 years ago with social media and also connect, being able to connect with people mm-hmm. and how easy it is to connect with people in a really positive way as well as connect with people in a really negative way. Um, I have been working with somebody who's 18 and um, she's been struggling with her recovery for a couple of years. And um, I, I see her struggle as being very different from mine at the same age because of the complications of social media and the expectation of bodies. And even for her, the, the access to porn um, and expectations, sexual expectations because of that, mm-hmm. things like that that I'm listening to her go through, which are, which are similar and different than things that we've gone through as older people. I'm sorry, I've rambled on and I don't remember your question. No, it's okay. No, I, you know, I mean, I think it's basically I'm asking about your, you know, in some ways your practice and how you've, how you've, decided to practice based on your own experiences, but also what are the needs that you feel like you are trying to, you know, where are the barriers to understanding the complexity of disordered eating in the eating disorder world, or where are the barriers to understanding that queer people, you know, it's a very pervasive, disordered eating is a very pervasive you know, predicament that many, many queer people are, are living with. And there aren't a lot of resources for that, or certainly a lot of discourse around that. Yeah, that's, that's completely true. And also, I think that in the same way that as I'm aging, I want to make sure that I find a place for myself among other queer people. I think that in this discussion, when you're talking about something as personal and vulnerable as body and our body stories and our body experience and the expression of our bodies in so many ways is different within the queer community than in this great cis community. I think that um, we want to find our people and we want to do this do this kind of work alongside our people and it feels safer in a queer space to to open ourselves up to these kinds of discussions, at least for me and with mm-hmm. those queer people that I'm working with. Um, I, I do believe that there should be a lot more work done in research and in practice with LGBTQIA plus folks in the realm of body acceptance, body trust, fat liberation, understanding that um, the Term body positivity is so fucking loaded now, that it, and and a lot of people think basically, and queer people too, that it means you know always being positive about your body all the time when that's nearly impossible for most of us at any given point, but mm-hmm. also um, tragically unavailable for people who are not born into the correct gender or mm-hmm. or people who are born into a body that's diseased and in pain mm-hmm. or, you know, all, all sorts of different ideas of what body positivity means that can be um, misunderstood by 
by us, by you know, people in general, but in particular. Yeah. Yeah, I really like the way you said that because I think that, you know, that one of the things about the videos that you post on Instagram is that, you know, you are kind of speaking often to this dilemma, right, um, within your own experience or, the, or, or of others, but, you know, within your own experience of kind of like encountering really powerful, like discomfort with um, either messaging that you're, you know, kind of receiving in the world or observing in the world, but also just feelings that you're having in your body, <clears throat> excuse me, right. feelings that are coming up in your body, you know, feelings of discomfort and, you know, being willing to talk about the fact that you have occasional backslides into maybe not I mean, explicit behaviors, but maybe, you know, desires to, um, engage in disordered eating behaviors or particular forms of exercise that, you know, um, that you are willing to kind of talk about that and that that is a, I think a more helpful framework for understanding what recovery, quote unquote, recovery or remission or, you know, any of those words that we use to describe kind of moving out of, you know, super active um, disordered eating spaces, but that, that the way to move out of it is the method or the, you know, is not to necessarily um, embrace body positivity in the way that it's framed now that that isn't actually very connected it's not very embodied in some ways it's not very real it's so true in fact if I like I worked with a middle school group this year my school um which was a kind of based in in pedagogy of body trust and you know I had them close their eyes and say okay what is what is body positive mean to you? And most everybody came up with, you know, those like commercials where people are laughing and, you know, they're white women and they're obviously affluent and they're in a great space with these chairs and they're not coming yep. in and they're eating a salad and that's what is supported as body positivity and that's what we should all want. And of course that's not available to most of us, if not all of us. And so that's what they're they they assume the group of 12-year-olds assumed that that's what we'd be talking about when they were, before they started with me, and they were given the title of the class and, and what we'd be working on. They all thought that they would be given tools to get to this life of laughing mm-hmm. a salad with your white friend in a, you know, in a, in a modernist house somewhere in the hill. Um, when in fact, it's sort of like, it's not all that. It's actually work. And that's the understanding um, that there's oppression, you know, there's the, the, the background of all this shit is oppression and white supremacy and colonialism, patriarchy. And, and so tearing that down as a part of body positivity has really been interesting with, with younger kids. And this particular group, it was all, all girls. Um, and that's been super interesting. But yeah, I think that that being honest about recovery and kind of like I heard you kind of question that word recovery. Mm-hmm. It, it is, it, it's never, it's never going to be done. I know for me, this is always going to be something that I have to be mindful of and catch myself and sliding into behaviors. And, and in a way that's okay. It reminds me of, it, it just reminds me of who I am, but yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a big piece of it is, 
his understanding of like recovery and healing and you know disorder and being sick it's it's pretty malleable and influenced by a lot of different things and and that's just the human condition right right yeah i think that having worked in you know in more formal um eating sort of treatment settings for years really um made me skeptical of the the kind of traject the healing trajectory that gets um and, and i understand it it's very hopeful you know like we yeah. want to be hopeful when we're when we're really sick and or when we're feeling discomfort or we're experiencing you know a, a kind of a traumatic state of being. Um, so I want people to feel hopeful. I think it's, it's just, it's very, very helpful to have, you know, folks like you talking about the kind of nonlinear aspect to um, healing or to feeling better about yourself or feeling okay in your body or what are the markers, you know, maybe we could talk a little bit about this, but like, you know, what are the markers for you of feeling kind of like, hey, I'm, I'm living a more, you know, quote unquote, recovered life, or I'm feeling, you know, pretty good about my body or pretty free to to do a lot of things in my life. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just wondering like what a, a kind of a, a day like that looks or feels like for you. That's such a good question. I think it really feels like, honestly, it feels like nothing. And that, yeah. Yeah. In, in that it's sort of like, I have no feelings about it at all. I think that's more of an aesthetic thing. So if I wake up in the morning and I'm just feeling like I have energy and then I'm, I'm, you know, interested in, in what I'm going to eat for breakfast, and I have my calendar A, B, C, and D, and I'm kind of moving towards that, and oh, this pair of shorts feels really comfortable. Like, everything just sort of slides into place without much thought. Mm. That's, a, that's a great day. Um, mm. mm-hmm. I think sometimes if I'm in a really, um, depending on my cycle, I'm in a really sexual place, that feels super empowering. And, and I can recognize that as that being very specifically um, happy body feeling. Like, oh, I'm, I'm responding and, and I'm feeling really sexy and I'm feeling really wanted and I'm feeling like mm-hmm. I want, want somebody. And that, that is a really great feeling for me, particularly as I get older. Uh, it, it's, it, I think the neutrality rather than the, yeah. um, the ache for something that feels Good. You know, I think aching for something to look and feel good is, is actually a problem. And if I can not really attach feeling to it, like, you know, when you're a little kid, you get up out of bed and you don't think about your, you're not thinking your body's shitty or your body's fantastic. You're not going to the mirror and saying, oh, I love myself. And you're not looking down, debating the, how the circumference of your thighs. You just get up and you play. And you don't really think about your body as either good or bad. And so that, I think, is kind of the goal in my head for what a good day is. Mm-hmm. You just kind of be. And you're, yeah. you're worth it the way you are. And just fucking play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, there's, there's not a lot of capacity. There's not a lot of importance on these sort of um, physical things. While physicality and you know, that's, that's important, but also just 
feeling like you belong in the vessel you're in is is the, the way I want to have a good day. So I, I love that. I love that kind of image of, and I think that that can be, you know, for some of the people listening, especially people who have, who have been kind of given the message that um, there are particular markers of success when it comes to recovery um, in terms of whatever is, you know, it, this doesn't have to necessarily be about um, disordered eating, but, you know, just that there are, that sometimes the discourses around recovery are, um, are really unattainable and more harmful than helpful. Um, yeah, they're really, I think they're really, in, not necessarily in my experience, but in others' experience that I've, I've witnessed to. I think it's a lot of black and white. And there's also in, in sort of um, medicalized recovery, there's still a lot of weight stigma. And there's, there's still a lot of what? Weight stigma? Weight, weight stigma, yeah. yeah. And, um, mm-hmm. and sort of correcting behaviors with other behaviors, other unhealthy yeah. And, you know, that's a problem. So, yeah, I think ways of looking at, well, there's a couple of things. Ways of looking at recovery that are more inclusive of um, one's own process, and also ways of looking at recovery um, that are filled with you know, humility and and humor. Um, and that's one thing I found that's been so important for me is understanding that I, I really did some ridiculous things, and not even all that long ago. <laughs> In the name of diet culture, in the name of getting to a goal, or in the name of, you know, achieving a look. Like, seriously, if I think about it, I, I, it's just, and and if you, you know, look back at at some of my videos on Instagram, I realize these things are so stupid and so silly, and I'm glad I can laugh at them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it's amazing what we'll do. It's amazing what we'll do when we don't feel like we know our own selves what the right thing is. You know, we're being told, being fed this information by diet culture and by patriarchy, and 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 for some reason we doubt our own instincts around taking care of ourselves when it mm-hmm. comes to our body, and we'll listen to the preposterous things we hear, like. Uh, maca root from Peru is going to actually I'm just quoting them make you fuck better and be and have more stamina mm-hmm. you know just just the things like all around all around food and food politics and wellness quote unquote and I mean that's that's a whole other piece of this is, is sort of the science of nutrition and how that feeds itself into diet culture and how that feeds itself into affluence and access and and mm. so it, it, again it goes down the rabbit hole of, of you know who gets what when and um i think i've just veered off the course of this conversation <laughs> mm-hmm. um but it's it's also it's also political all of the stuff is politically charged and all of the stuff is um uh okay asher stop me <laughs> okay again, i'm going down a hole in you 
Well, I think that, I mean, I think that there is, there is something really interesting to maybe say about, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot interesting to say, but you know, about kind of where you live currently, where you're practicing and what wellness culture, quote unquote, wellness culture and discourses around wellness and nutrition, what you are encountering and how maybe even that you have found yourself to be, you know, susceptible to the power of some of these discourses that aren't explicitly, I mean, I think it's, it is diet culture, but it is kind of framed as wellness or, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's goop, like everything is, I I don't, I don't know, you know, it's just, I'm not sure what I'm asking, but you know, like, how do you navigate that? You know, my diagnosis that I'm in recovery from now, my most recent struggle was with orthorexia nervosa, which is um, the technical, there's so many different definitions for it. The one I use is like a, 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 a unnatural obsession with clean eating and healthy, yeah. healthy food. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was, you know, it's, it's, diet, it's a diet that kind of disguises a virtue. And I sort of fell for that virtue thing because I, again, going back to my childhood, a lot of my struggles with this stuff is because I want attention. And when I found out that I could get attention if I, say, knew a lot about nutrition or if I would appear like I was eating this beautiful, healthy food or I ran, I was a you know, an ultra marathoner and I go on 50 mile mountain runs, um, things like that I got attention for. And I didn't consider it, interestingly enough, for a long time, I didn't consider it diet or anything other than I'm just taking care of myself. This is the way that uh, that people should take care of themselves. And, and so um, I'm going to take care of my body in the best way I know how. And of course, that way was a diet and that way really stoked my disorder again mm-hmm. and and actually wreaked more havoc than any part of, of my other worlds of disorder eating um, because it was so empowering and yes. people would ask me medical advice. <laughs> Yes. Yes. So I'd be like, "Hey, uh, my liver's enlarged." And they're like, "Well, you should probably just drink drink celery juice." It's like I just spout off these things that I had researched endlessly because that's all I ever did. Mm -hmm. And then I decided to become a nutritionist at that point for two reasons: one, because I thought I I owed it to the world to to be this person. And two, because I wasn't really eating very much food, and my with my orthorexia, I was limiting more and more and more because I was fearful of more and more and more of what I put into my body because I thought it was poison or would make me sick, and all these different levels of going, limiting myself further and further was what wouldn't scare me. Um, so I thought, well, everybody needs to know that information too, and I wasn't. Mm-hmm. eating much and I wanted to be around food as much as possible so ended up going to get my uh, certification in nutrition which of course was from a very orthorexic place too and so that just made it a little bit more complicated right um I just I generally see that especially in in affluent you know communities 
um, in LA, you know, with a lot of industry driven people, also kind of like that, where you have a lot of money and a lot of resources and a lot of interest in doing the right thing and, and being the right kind of person and having your shopping cart look a certain way. And so all of that kind of feeds into the mm. kind of what I would consider to be a very orthorexic lifestyle. I think it's Absolutely. so common that that it's sort of like, you know, it's almost expected. Yeah, we don't recognize it as disordered at all. Um, no, no, but not yeah, at all. It's almost like you're not recognizable. And I think, I, I, which is why I'm, I'm really grateful to you for just kind of sharing some of the details of, of that aspect of your experience, because I think that um, that's a conversation that, you know, needs to be had. And in particular, I think a lot of people who are uncomfortable too. I mean, I agree with you around the the kind of affluence and that aspect, but I think it also is really insidious when it comes to, um, you know, people who often like queer, gender nonconforming, trans people who are really feeling uncomfortable in their bodies, people who've had, you know, serious health issues, you know, any of those kinds of things, you know, there is a way that that wellness world of that somewhat can be, can be, not always, but can be kind of or very orthorexic, you know, can offer, as you said, some kind of more virtuous path to right. um, self-improvement and empowered embodiment. And um, when, when it really unravels, it, it doesn't, it doesn't actually, you know, it, it, it can make you really sick as you, as you, as you've experienced. And so I just, I appreciate you kind of bringing, bringing that into light. I'm I'm aware of the time and I, I do have one last question for you. And then I want yeah. to hear um, a little bit about how people can find you. But if you have, uh, if we can circle back to that, um, that five-year-old you, you know, standing, mm-hmm. standing in line and, and having that, that classmate comment, make the comment to you, you know, do you have anything you would want that version of you to know now? I think that I would, I would tell her that she deserves to be loved and she deserves to be given attention and she deserves to eat and eat the foods her friends are eating and that she can always rely on understanding that somebody will be there for her no matter what she looks like or how she expresses herself or where she goes in her life, that there will be somebody always there to take care of her. So we can get her in the trust. I know, right? <laughs> I'm getting all teary. It's so sweet. I just can, I can really picture that being so reassuring um, to such a like bewildered and confused and tender younger version of you. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, no problem. I would love to, um, you know, I will certainly let people know, we'll include some links in the show notes um, and on Instagram, but how can people best find you and get in touch and learn about what you do? I think the best way is actually on Instagram. It's at lamplight.space and lamplight, everybody always asks and things we talk about why it's lamplight. 
um, because when I was running constantly, I'd get up in the middle of the night and run, and I'd run in the dawn, and I'd run in the dark and whatever, and I always felt very comforted in my houses that had the lamps on, mm-hmm. and it was, a, it was a very warm, kind of yellow light, and and I just felt like I didn't, I didn't feel like I had a, a place of belonging at, in my own body at that point. So when I would go past a place that felt like people were loved and, and had a family and it was just warm and inviting, that I loved that. And so that's what I love it. It's called my life. So anyway, my Instagram is at lamplight.space. I also have a website, um, lamplight.space. And those are really the only ways I do anything. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, well, and there's you know there's other things in motion, but they're not. I don't really do Facebook, so Instagram is a big one. Great. Okay. Well, Meg, thank you so much for sharing, and um, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you, and I appreciate everything you're doing to bring this conversation to the queer community and to make people who are having this conversation aware of mm-hmm. so aware of each yeah. other too yeah yeah, yeah absolutely so thank you yeah. Actually, this is a beautiful mm. project. thank you mm-hmm.